Welcome to Behind the Scenes with Brian, the podcast covering everything from engineering, mining, and mine waste management to whatever else may be on our minds. Pop in your headphones and don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share. And now, here is your host, Brian Ulrich. Hey everyone, this is Brian and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian and today I am joined by a longtime friend and associate, Dave Stone from Minefield. Dave, how are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Brian. Yeah, and when, where are you located these days, Dave? Well, after 35 years of uh, loving living in the Pacific Northwest in, uh, in Seattle, I moved to Tucson, Arizona in 2019 and I call that home now. Those are kind of polar opposites, Dave. I don't know if you noticed that. Well, that was probably the reason for the move. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but unfortunately, uh, as you know, I, you know, I've been crippled with arthritis all of my life, and I just got to the point where the winters were too painful living in Seattle, and I needed a drier climate so I could survive. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I just developed some bad arthritis in my thumb which is nothing uh you know in the grander scheme of things but i i can appreciate that anyway so dave we're recording this during the pandemic and hopefully you and your company are uh surviving well enough during the the whole pandemic well you know it's funny you ask that because when when the first lockdown started occurring uh, as the pandemic kind of set in, I was very worried about where where the business was going to go and and just you know the health of of the whole mining business as a whole, and um, and I was expecting it to be kind of along the lines of of some of the commodity crashes that we've had over the years, uh, especially back in in 2008, um, thereabouts in two, uh, 2012. Um, but much to my surprise, uh, our workload actually exploded. Um, and I attribute that to the fact that uh, a lot of mining companies have had projects sitting on their books for many, many years that they didn't have the staff uh, to look after these um, projects and, and to, to uh, manage them. And uh, when all the mines uh, shut down, uh, for the production shut down for COVID, uh, all of a sudden they, they had all these very talented engineers and geologists that they did not want to lose. Mm. Um, they kept them busy with all of these projects that had been sitting on the books. So all of a sudden the phone started ringing off the hook with, you know, well, we've decided to look at this now and can you help us? Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it seems like all the geotech companies are saying the same thing. I know when I was at a previous employer, there was kind of a stutter step at the beginning when some of the places were on lockdown but even when they were on lockdown like like you say people work remotely and and you know it seemed to recover pretty quickly there yeah and i think uh, the only companies that really suffered uh were the ones that were dependent on the site work um so some of the geotech companies that were involved in construction and and that type of work they were the ones that felt 
uh, you know, they felt the the lockdowns and the, and the slowdowns in in production. Um, but for those those on the peer consulting side of things, it it uh, as I say, it things actually picked up. Yeah, yeah, that's good good for good news for all of us, uh, the industry at large. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about about yourself, your background, your education. All right. Well, um, I did my undergraduate at uh, the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, and that was in the in the nineteen seventies. Um, did a, a bachelor of applied science in geological engineering, um, and maybe I should back the train up a little bit and just say that, you know, when I first went into engineering in nineteen seventy five, you, you know, you did this first year general year. Um, where you, you weren't associated with any particular discipline uh, and it was supposed to give you a, a, an opportunity to decide, you know, what you wanted to do with your life. And back in those days, I thought that chemical engineering just seemed like the, the absolute neatest thing on earth. I was just fascinated <laughs> by chemical engineering. And so at the end of the year, towards the end of the year, they have these open houses for all the different departments. Yeah. Um, and you go in and you get to meet, you know, real engineers that are doing real jobs and stuff like that. And I went to the, I was so excited to go to the chemical engineering open house. Um, and after spending a couple hours there, I came out of there horrified. <laughs> I thought, like, who on earth would want to be a chemical engineer? Oh, no. It's going to be like the worst <laughs> job ever. Oh, no. So I went over to the geology department, um, and that was that was my first fascination really with rocks was uh, was going over to geology, and um, and that's when I decided I got to do something that's to do with geology. But of course, I I wanted to be an engineer, and that's why I ended up in the geological engineering. And then what steered me into the mining was going to work for a consultant on graduation that was primarily consulting for mines uh, and that's what got me hooked on being uh, being in the mining business and being a, a consultant to mine and I spent the first 10 years of my career being a, a pure rock mechanics consultant uh, doing you know open pit designs underground designs um, and not doing a lot of backfill work because back in those days nobody wanted to talk about backfill it was a it was kind of a taboo topic because all it did was just cost mines money. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, as time went on and, and of course, then I went off and did my PhD at, at Queens University in Kingston. Um, and my thesis supervisor uh, was Dr. Bob Mitchell. And of course, his expertise was mine backfills. Um, so this is that's how I got into the mine backfill business. Yeah, yeah. I was doing my my PhD and and after graduation, then of course, then I became fully hooked on on mine backfills. Yeah, interesting. So I've got a, a question for you. I've had this conversation a few times, and in your opinion, is rock mechanics part of geotechnical engineering? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, there are not that many that cross the line between doing the soil mechanics and the rot mechanics. And I think, you know, because both of those specialties are very, very specialized, there's not really a lot in, in common. But I think in terms of a, a discipline, they're, they're inseparable. Um, what's interesting for me doing the rot mechanics side of things is that 
Rot Mechanics has a crossover between civil and mining where, you know, unless you're on the tailing side of the business, saw mechanics doesn't really do that overlap between between civil and mining. But in, in rot mechanics, it's it's inevitable that you have this crossover. So then the, the question comes down to is that if you're a rot mechanics engineer, are you ease that that was a real crisis because they don't recognize rot mechanics as being a, a you know a discipline that uh, for for uh, engineering licensing purposes. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. Uh, yeah, it's funny because my geotechnical engineering textbooks say almost nothing about rock mechanics. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose they're still related to saw mechanics that has that has nothing to do with rock mechanics and there's not really there's not really much in the rock mechanics field that's usable in the saw mechanics field yeah yeah <laughs> but they are related mechanics mechanically anyway just to a great extent yes yeah yeah okay well dave what was your career like you went from uh, getting your phd to to doing what yeah, so um, again, an interesting story, but uh, um, I went to go work for a consultant in Vancouver after I graduated. And actually, um, I was very lucky because uh, in the last year I did my PhD, uh, my supervisor was very keen on me applying for one of these uh, National Research Council um, fellowships uh, that, that in Canada is called NSERC. Um, and that what they basically what they do is they provide your salary for a year for you to go work for somebody and they only give about uh, 20 of these out a year and I actually won uh, one of those NSERC fellowships so can you imagine showing up for a potential employer and saying okay Canada is going to pay my paycheck and <laughs> I have a job <laughs> right so I didn't have a lot of trouble getting a job, but my first yeah. year was, as I say, was funded by by NSERC. Um, and of course, the what NSERC hopes is that you'll go back and, and teach. So basically, they, they want you to go out and get some practical experience doing uh, like real life work. Yeah. And then after a couple of years, come back and, and teach. And, and as you would well know, uh, with your engineering degree, the worst teachers you had were the ones that had never worked a day in their life. They did oh, yeah. do a master's, yeah. PhD, and then straight into being a professor. Yep. So, so it was a it was a great plan. Uh, but in my case, I just kind of fell in love with the job. And and in my second year uh, w with this job, uh, I was approached uh, by my boss, saying that they had gone around the entire office looking for somebody to go to Montana to look after the construction of a mine and they couldn't find anybody in the office that wanted to move to Montana. <laughs> um, and of course, you remember that in the early 1980s and, and, and maybe I, I might get shot for saying this, but, you know, Canadians didn't have a lot of respect for Americans. And and so you imagine going through this Vancouver office, everybody's like, no way, I'm not going down there. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah. And um, and so me, I I saw the opportunity and I jumped at it. And uh, so off I went to Montana uh, to Butte uh, and was involved in, in the construction of a couple of heat leach uh, projects in, in Butte. 
um, and and also uh, designing open pits. And towards the end of that uh, secondment to, to that project, uh, the company decided to start an office in Seattle. And that ultimately was what got me um, moving to Seattle because obviously once the office was established, they asked if I was interested in, in being part of the Seattle office. And again, I jumped at the opportunity and I ne never turned back. Oh, that's great. That's great. And at what point did you launch out and create your own company? So that was in, um, in 1999. And actually what had happened before that was, so this company that I was working with um, ended up merging with another a Canadian company, and um, and we were also so pleased to see the faxes coming in. We're sitting in the Seattle office there, and the faxes are coming mm -hmm. in announcing mm -hmm. the merger. and And in the announcement, it says with offices in Vancouver, Calgary, and Toronto. <laughs> we're, we're like, hmm, wonder hmm. what that means. Yeah, right. <laughs> and sure enough, the next day, uh, the bo the bosses showed up, and they said, uh, "Sorry, boys." Uh, We've decided that we don't want to be in the U.S. anymore. We're rolling everything back to Canada, and and you guys all, have the, you're welcome to come back to Canada, and we'll give you, give you your jobs back up there. Otherwise, um, be nice working with you. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a couple of us that got together. Uh, Tom Tom Harper, you'd know Tom, uh, yeah, and Roy Mayfield, who ended up at the University of Washington, and um, uh, so the three of us got together and said, well heck, why don't we just start our own company? Um, and we did that. So that was in 1993. Mm -hmm. um, and about a year later, uh, I got involved in some very large backfill projects in Peru. Um, and it was really kind of out of scope for what um, what the three of us were doing, uh, because I was the only one that had the kind of the rock mechanics um, underground mining background. So at that time, I decided the best thing for me to do was to uh, to actually leave and and um, and start my own company. And and it was kind of pushed a little part it bit in part by I had uh, I had met a, uh, a a guy from from Mississauga at a conference in in uh, in Brisbane, Australia, hmm. and uh, and he and he kind of put forward the proposal that like why do we why do we hook up and start a company together. Um, and that was that was how Mindfield Services was born, uh, was kind of out of that uh, out of that meeting and, and the two of us getting together and starting starting Mindfield. And of course, right away we had this huge project in Peru that we were working on. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, fortuitous timing, but also a fortuitous meeting with your uh, your partner. Absolutely. Yeah. And so you, you've gone on from there, uh, you know, zoom ahead 20 something years and you've got a really successful practice. And most people that are interested in backfill know of you and, and probably have uh, at the very minimum considered you for their project. So in that 20 years or 20 plus years from, from uh, 1999 to now, to what do you owe you contribute your success or your brand or your reputation? How did you how did you build this into the success that it is? Well, I suppose a lot of it is due in part to the fact that there's not a lot of competition. Um, and you know, 
for the most part, a lot of mining companies still do all their their backfill work in house, um, mm -hmm. and a lot of the majors, of course, have uh, in house consultants responsible for for backfill. So it's a it's a very small uh, industry, um, particularly on the on the underground side of it. Um, you know, because there's kind of in the business nowadays, there's kind of two parts to being in the backfill business. One is is the mechanical, civil, electrical, piping side of building a plant, and then the other side is the the kind of the rot mechanics, geotechnical, uh, you know, geomechanics aspect of it of putting backfill underground and what does it mean and what strengths do you need and all that. And of course, I came in through that geomechanical side with my rot mechanics expertise. And I think that's kind of what helped me launch uh, into the business. Um, but really, it, it, the, the business has evolved a lot in, in the last 20 years, because as I say, you know, in the early years, uh, people didn't like the backfill. They didn't like the backfill engineers because all they do is just cost the mine money. Uh, <laughs> they didn't see that there was any economic, uh, you know, they did, didn't understand the economics of, of backfilling um and so you got kind of a, a crusty reception you went when you went to mines and the one the one story i always tell people is that it used to be that you would go and say well we need to spend uh you know five million dollars on a backfill plant and they would they would basically throw you out of the office they don't want to talk to you anymore <laughs> but uh, after a couple of uh, uh unfortunate disasters in the surface tailings business now you go to them and say well, i want to spend 50 million dollars on a backfill plant and they go oh wow is that all <laughs> right, right. maybe maybe i should back it up a little bit dave and say what what is backfill and what are the different kinds of backfill well basically that the the principle of backfilling is to return uh generally returning mine waste uh back underground to fill the stoke voids um, and what that does is it allows you to recover more of the ore because if you don't fill the voids, you have to leave pillars. And in some of these mines, these individual pillars can be worth millions, if not tens of millions of dollars per pillar. So there's a lot of money that gets tied up in, in, uh, in pillars. So what we do is, is by backfilling these stopes uh, and you know the backfills mixed with cement so we're basically making a, a lean concrete type material um, we then allow you to, to come along afterwards and recover the pillars um, and and from that basic concept the industry has really kind of branched out into all kinds of different types of mining methods that are associated with backfill um, and we're reliant on basically on three principal types of backfill one is uh, is what we call hydraulic fill, which is the oldest form of filling that's been used for hundreds of years now, um, where you take the tailing slurry and you, you pour it underground and you let the water decant off uh, and you drain the water out of the mine. Um, and then in the in the about the 1950s, they started adding cement to the sand so that it actually set to a, a hardened material. The other uh, type, of course, uh, that goes way back is, is cemented rockfill, where you're basically taking the the mine waste uh, and you're make, you're making a lean concrete like material, and you truck that underground and you tip it into the stove, and then that material sits for a period of time and, and sets up, forms this lean concrete, and allows you to mine right up alongside of it. And then in about the late 1990s, uh, we were introduced to the 
the pace backfill business where, uh, and this was really predicated out of uh, mines, particularly in Australia and Canada, where uh, the very large hydraulic fill operations that were pumping a lot of water underground. And then of course, having to deal with the water underground was not only an expense, but it was a safety issue. And of course the water is dirty. It's got a lot of silt in it. So it, it's a terrible material to try and pull back out of the mine. And so uh, the mine operators really wanted to come up with a way of getting the tailings underground without sending it down with the uh, with, with all this water. And, and what they did was they basically went to the concrete technology and, and, and got to better understand the rheology of concrete mixes. And so now what we have is this material that's pumpable, but it's at a very high solids content. And, and once it's placed, it doesn't bleed any water. So we don't have to deal with any of those water ma management issues. And so what we've seen in the last, you know, kind of 10, uh, 15 years is just a, a dramatic, uh, uh, a dramatic uh, conversion of all the hydraulic fill operations over to paste backfill and a lot of the cemented rock fill operations have have now converted over to paste and I, I think I think hydraulic fill worldwide is probably still the most common type of backfilling that's available mm. and that's actually utilized but in regions like Australia and Canada and even to some part in the US here um, the, the paste is by far the, the dominant type of backfill. Yeah, interesting. When uh, my, my early days running an office in Elko, Nevada, I was talking to a co-worker about underground paste backfill and he said it'll never work here because we use underground cut and fill. I might be using the wrong terminology so you can fix that if you wish, but I couldn't figure out why he would have that mentality but I think it was just because we've never done it before therefore it's not going to work here well of course um, you know those of us in the backfill business know that it, it took 12 years to get that paste plant at, at uh, rodeo uh, permitted yeah uh, it, it, that that was the very first paste plant that was built in in Nevada now granted uh, Paste backfill in the U.S. goes all the way back to the late 1990s because Stillwater has been using paste backfill since the late 1990s. Um, and interestingly enough, um, the what used to be OCI uh, in Wyoming, Sodash in Wyoming, I think now it's called Sinner uh, hmm. in Wyoming. They have what is this is uh, still the second oldest uh, deep cone thickener, paste thickener. Um, that was built in the U.S. and they've been using paste since the since the mid to late 1990s as well. So, so it paste is not new to the U.S. But in Nevada, they they had the the regulators had issues with uh, with what was being put underground, and it it took 12 years to permit that first plant. Um, we're now um, I think we're now up to three operating paste plants in uh, in Nevada. Um, with Leeville um, and uh, and Nevada Copper, um, but still, it's uh, it, it it was a, a long a long painful process. And and what I see now, of course, is that it, the U.S. I think is kind of taking the lead on on permitting requirements. They actually have permitting requirements for paste plants, whereas elsewhere in the world they haven't caught up to us yet. Hmm. So, Dave, you mentioned a deep cone thickener, and 
you and I have also discussed uh, filtered tailings technology to make paste. Is, is, do you see a trend in one way or another, deep cone versus filter plants? Well, the, the reality is that for metal mining, uh, mm -hmm. deep cone thickeners, um, they're not they're not anywhere near as effective as going the filtration route. So I would say that more than 90% of the paste material that's used for pumping underground is produced by a, a conventional filtration, you know, paste mixing route. The where the paste thickeners really are effective is for surface disposal of paste. And and the the, the qualifier there is that a the material when we're pumping uh, paste underground, we have very very tight engineering specifications that that paste must meet, both in terms of yield stress, solids content, binder content, and the and ultimately the strength of that material. And the way that a deep cone thickener works is it has a lot of trouble producing uh, a consistent paste at a consistent quality over time. It tends to it tends to fluctuate between a higher solids content, high yield stress, down to a, a lower solids, uh, you know, or sorry, lower solids, higher yield, or lower, uh, lower yield stress than higher solids, higher yield stress. It, it can't produce a consistent material. And so it's constantly out of spec. So there are, there are actually not that many mines that have gone the deep cone thickener route. Uh, Lachine was one of them. Uh, as I say, there's one at Stillwater. Um, and the reason that the guys at OCI get away with it is because they're they're using soda ash, which is not a m metallic product. So their, their paste is a very, very unique paste. Um, but by far the most common is use of filtered tailings. Where the real question comes down to, Brian, is do you use pressure filtered tailings or mm -hmm. vacuum filtered tailings? Yeah. That's, that's the question that we deal with all the time. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, for uh, surface uh, tailings facilities, that's also a big question. And of course, us geotechs want to focus on a very specific moisture content for the, the delivered filter cake. Yes, and, and so what we find is that, the as you would know, the, the majority of, of uh, sites that are doing dry stacking, they, they prefer to use the pressure filtered tailings um, and they don't want to build two filter plants. So we end up getting pressure filter tailings delivered to the paste plant. And there yeah. are some issues with dealing with, with that material in a paste plant. We, we would prefer to use the vacuum filter tailings where we don't take quite so much water out and the, the material that's going to the mixer is kind of closer to the consistency of paste. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I've never thought of that as being a shortcoming of, of the uh, pressure filters for paste fill. Interesting. Interesting. Well, Dave, can you give us an example of where your work has uh, been a great success for your clients i think one of the uh one of the oldest uh kind of um projects that that uh where i think we really contributed a lot was that this is going all the way back now to kind of early 2000s when uh when i was working at the porter mine in papua new guinea um and and they were using uh 
you know, a 7% cement, 7% cement binder for their backfill. And the, the cement was coming from uh, Singapore in, uh, in, in normal sacks, um, you know, not 95 pound sacks. <laughs> yeah. and, and by the time it, it took sea freight from Singapore, landed in Ley, offloaded onto a truck, and then it was 700 kilometers by truck up to the mine in, in uh, pouring rain and landslides and everything else. <laughs> by the time it got to the mine, uh, it cost about $700 a ton for the, for the cement that made it. Wow. And the cement at about half of that was uh half, half of those, those bags were already hydrated um because they weren't properly <laughs> right, sealed right so right. we uh we made a, a lot of changes to their backfill recipe and i think at one point it worked out that we were saving them over a million dollars a year in cement and i i think that's really where certainly you know from the early days of of being in the backfill business a lot of our focus was on convincing clients that they did not need to use quite so much cement or changing their recipes so they didn't need to use quite so much cement and and saving these clients a lot of money in uh, in, in the cost of cement interesting yeah um, most people think that it does take a lot of cement to make the paste so that's that's uh, pretty interesting but you're just trying to solve a rock mechanics problem not make the hardest material you can exactly I, I suppose if you put too much in it could make another rock mechanics problem for you uh, uh, presumably although they, they probably would the, the engineers or the mining engineers probably wouldn't complain too much but uh but uh, yeah you could conceivably i mean I've, I've heard of people talking about having backfills that are you know up over 50 mpa um you know the cannon mine i think was one of the the, the uh, strongest backfills that was ever uh, used in practice, uh, the, the cannon mine in Wenatchee in Washington State, um, and they were doing, you know, uh, a cemented rock fill that was somewhere around uh, 10 to 15 MPA, um, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, more than more than half the strength of concrete. Um, there is a, a mine in uh, in Peru, uh, the Antichawa mine. Uh, that uh, is doing underhound mining and and they too are batching what is truly is a lean concrete and and their backfill strengths are also in that kind of 10 to 15 mpa range yeah interesting interesting do you see any trends in underground mine backfill uh, obviously like we we're saying paste seems to be uh, the way to go but is do you see any trends either geographically or technologically well i think that you know the trends we're seeing now is to try and uh simplify the plants so that they're easier to operate and they're cheaper um i always flinch, flinch when i see some of these new projects coming up and they have you know backfill plants that are costing 80 100 million dollars um and and especially relating back to my story at the beginning there when we used to get thrown out for telling it was going to cost five million um, <laughs> but uh you know there and i think that from a technological standpoint that that the, the technology that first kind of five to ten years in the base backfill business we we invested a lot in understanding the rheology of pace backfills and how that impacted the pumpability and the behavior and the strength 
of the fills. And I think we have a really good handle on that now. So we, we've kind of crossed that bridge and, and we don't really need to fix anything on that standpoint. But where the real technology is now, and, and you would know this all too well, is improving the technologies for filtration to increase the capacity and lower the cost, um, improving the technologies for thickening, improving the technologies for uh, mixing. Um, and even, uh, I think we're gonna see some huge technological changes in cement. Um, and I don't know if you follow the cement industry at all, but you know, they're all, all of the major cement companies like Wholesome and Lafarge and, and the rest of them have, have made this mandate that by 2030, they're gonna reduce their greenhouse gases by 50% and by 2050, they're gonna reduce it by, you know, 75, 80, 90%. Yeah. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of technology going into rethinking how you can make cements that are that are greenhouse gas friendly if i could use that terminology mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so it, it, it you know that, that i think that's where the developments are going to be so we're kind of on the receiving end of of that technology it's not directly for us as a, per se as being the backfill business but we're on the receiving end of all of these improvements oh, okay great yeah yeah interesting well, Dave, we've covered a lot of information. We're just about out of time for today, but is there any uh, pearls of wisdom or key takeaways that you could drop on us? Well, I think, you know, for me, um, you know, most of my career, uh, I've, I've spent working from home. So that that's why I thought it was rather, rather ironical that when we got into COVID, that there was this was big thing about working from home. But it, it really, I think it for for all of us that are in the mining business, it, the, the constant struggle is that work-life balance. And, mm -hmm. and I really think that that's something that uh, that people need to get, a you know, in this industry, you need to have a really good grasp on managing your work-life balance. Um, one of the things that I did early on in my career uh, when, I when I started working from home primarily was that um, you have this tendency to be sitting watching TV at 11 o'clock at night and a light goes on that, oh yeah, you've been trying to fix something all day and all of a sudden you realize at 11 o'clock at night that what the solution is, yeah. you go back to your office and then at four in the morning, you're like, holy smokes, how did it get to be four in the morning? <laughs> and I, I think you, you have to have the, the discipline not to do that because otherwise there's no separation between your home life and your work life. And there has to be some sort of a separation. So what I did was I just mentally said to myself that when I step out the door of my office, I'm not at the office anymore. And if I'm sitting having dinner and I realize that I made a mistake on a spreadsheet, it's like, it's gotta wait till tomorrow. You're like, you don't go back and fix it because it, you, you will make yourself miserable because you will never get any time off. I like that. Yeah, at the, at the very most, you can make a sticky note for yourself so you don't have to worry about remembering it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's really good advice, Dave. Well, Dave, I really appreciate your time today. It's been really great catching up with you. And uh, I know you're going to the SME conference in Salt Lake City here before too long. And I hope that's a really good turnout. I'm not going to be there this year. I'll be at the one in Denver next year. But I'm hoping for the best with the turnout and, and all that. And I'm, I'm sure it will be. I was at the uh, AEMA in uh, Reno in December, and it was a pretty good turnout there. So I, th I think SME is going to be even better. 
I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. They say that they've got 700 exhibitors. Um, okay. So we'll see how many empty booths there are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's hope for the best. And Dave, it's been great catching up with you. And I hope to run into you sometime soon, one of these days, probably in an airport somewhere. All right. Well, thanks, Brian. Thanks for the invite, Brian. I really appreciate that. I love chatting with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. Yeah. Thanks again, Dave. And uh, wish you a really good day. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's it. I'm Brian, and this is Behind the Scenes with Brian. Until next time, keep on rocking.